the second the golden thread from a tale of two cities chapter one five years later Telson's bank by temple bar was an old-fashioned place even in the year one thousand seven hundred and eighty it was very small very dark very ugly very incommodious it was an old-fashioned place moreover in the moral attribute that the partners in the house were proud of its smallness proud of its darkness proud of its ugliness proud of its incommodiousness they were even boastful of its eminence in those particulars and were fired by an express conviction that if it were less objectionable it would be less respectable this was no passive belief but an active weapon which they flashed at more convenient places of business Telson's, they said wanted no elbow-room Telson's wanted no light Telson's wanted no embellishment noakes and companies might or snooks brothers might but Telson's, thank heaven any one of these partners would have disinherited his son on the question of rebuilding Telson's. in this respect the house was much on a par with the country which did very often disinherit its sons for suggesting improvements in laws and customs that had long been highly objectionable but were only the more respectable thus it had come to pass that Telson's was the triumphant perfection of inconvenience after bursting open a door of idiotic obstinacy with a weak rattle in its throat you fell into Telson's down two steps and came to your senses in a miserable little shop with two little counters where the oldest of men made your check shake as if the wind rustled it while they examined the signature by the dingiest of windows which were always under a shower bath of mud from fleet street and which were made the dingier by their own iron bars proper and the heavy shadow of temple bar if your business necessitated your seeing the house you were put into a species of condemned hold at the back where you meditated on a misspent life until the house came with its hands in its pockets and you could hardly blink at it in the dismal twilight your money came out of or went into wormy old wooden drawers particles of which flew up your nose and down your throat when they were opened and shut your banknotes had a musty odor as if they were fast decomposing into rags again your plate was stowed away among the neighboring cesspools, and evil communications corrupted its good polish in a day or two. Your deeds got into extemporized strong-rooms made of kitchens and sculleries, and fretted all the fat out of their parchments into the banking-house air. Your lighter boxes of family papers went upstairs into a barmecide room that always had a great dining-table in it and never had a dinner and where even in the year one thousand seven hundred and eighty the first letters written to you by your old love or by your little children were but newly released from the horror of being ogled through the windows by the heads exposed on temple bar with an insensate brutality and ferocity worthy of abyssinia or ashanti but indeed at that time putting to death was a recipe much in vogue with all trades and professions and not least of all with Telson's. death is nature's remedy for all things and why not legislations accordingly the forger was put to death the utterer of a bad note was put to death the unlawful opener of a letter was put to death the purloiner of forty shillings and sixpence was put to death the holder of a horse at Telson's door who made off with it was put to death 
the coiner of a bad shilling was put to death, the sounders of three-fourths of the notes in the whole gamut of crime were put to death. Not that it did the least good in the way of prevention. It might almost have been worth remarking that the fact was exactly the reverse. But it cleared off, as to this world, the trouble of each particular case, and left nothing else connected with it to be looked after. Thus, Tellson's, in its day, like greater places of business, its contemporaries, had taken so many lives, that if the heads laid low before it had been ranged on Temple Bar instead of being privately disposed of, they would probably have excluded what little light the ground floor had in a rather significant manner. Cramped in all kinds of dim cupboards and hutches at Tellson's, the oldest of men carried on the business gravely. When they took a young man into Tellson's London house, they hid him somewhere till he was old. They kept him in a dark place, like a cheese, until he had the full Tellson flavour and blue mould upon him. Then only was he permitted to be seen, spectacularly poring over large books, and casting his breeches and gaiters into the general weight of the establishment. Outside Tellson's, never by any means in it, unless called in, was an odd job man, an occasional porter and messenger, who served as the live sign of the house. He was never absent during business hours, unless upon an errand, and then he was represented by his son, a grisly urchin of twelve, who was his express image. People understood that Tellson's, in a stately way, tolerated the odd job man. The house had always tolerated some person in that capacity, and time and tide had drifted this person to the post. His surname was Cruncher, and on the youthful occasion of his renouncing by proxy the works of darkness in the easterly parish church of Houndsditch, he had received the added appellation of Jerry. The scene was Mr. Cruncher's private lodging in Hanging Sword Alley, Whitefriars. The time, half-past seven of the clock on a windy March morning, Anno Domini, seventeen hundred and eighty. Mr. Cruncher himself always spoke of the year of our Lord as Anna Dominoes, apparently under the impression that the Christian era dated from the invention of a popular game by a lady who had bestowed her name upon it. Mr. Cruncher's apartments were not in a savoury neighbourhood, and were but two in number, even if a closet with a single pane of glass in it might be counted as one. But they were very decently kept. Early as it was, on the windy March morning, the room in which he lay abed was already scrubbed throughout, and between the cups and saucers arranged for breakfast and the lumbering deal-table a very clean white cloth was spread. Mr. Cruncher reposed under a patchwork counterpane like a harlequin at home. At first he slept heavily, but by degrees began to roll and surge in bed, until he rose above the surface, with his spiky hair looking as if it must tear the sheets to ribbons. At which juncture he exclaimed, in a voice of dire exasperation, "'Bust me if she ain't at it again!' A woman of orderly and industrious appearance rose from her knees in a corner, with sufficient haste and trepidation to show that she was the person referred to. "'What?' said Mr. Cruncher, looking out of bed for a boot. "'You're at it again, are you?' After hailing the morn with this second salutation, he threw a boot at the woman as a third. 
It was a very muddy boot, and may introduce the odd circumstance connected with Mr. Crunch's domestic economy, that whereas he often came home after banking hours with clean boots, he often got up next morning to find the same boots covered with clay. What? said Mr. Cruncher, varying his apostrophe after missing his mark. What are you up to, Agara waiter? I was only saying me prayers. Saying your prayers? You're a nice woman. What do you mean by flopping yourself down and praying agin me? I was not praying against you. I was praying for you. You weren't. And if you were, I won't be took a liberty with. Here, your mother's a nice woman, young Jerry, going a praying again your father's prosperity. You've got a dutiful mother, you have, me son. You've got a religious mother, you have, my boy. Going and flopping herself down and praying that the bread and butter may be snatched out of the mouth of her only child. Master Cruncher, who was in his shirt, took this very ill, and, turning to his mother, strongly deprecated any praying away of his personal board. "'And what do you suppose, you conceited female?' said Mr. Cruncher, with unconscious inconsistency, "'that the worth of your prayers may be. Name the price that you put your prayers at. They only come from the heart, Jerry. They are worth no more than that.' "'Worth no more than that,' repeated Mr. Cruncher. "'They ain't worth much, then. Whether or no, I won't be prayed again, I tell you. I can't afford it. I'm not a-going to be made unlucky by your sneaking. If you must go flopping yourself down, flop in favour of your husband and child, and not in opposition to him. If I had had any but an unnatural wife, and this poor boy had had any but a unnatural mother, I might have made some money last week, instead of being counterprayed and countermined, and religiously circumvented into the worst of luck. Bust me, said Mr. Cruncher, who all this time had been putting on his clothes, if I ain't, what with piety and one blowed thing or another, been choused this last week into as bad luck as ever a poor devil of a honest tradesman met with. "'Young Jerry, dress yourself up, me boy, and while I clean my boots, keep an eye upon your mother now and then, and if you see any signs of more flopping, give me a call, for I tell you—here he addressed his wife once more—I won't be gone again in this manner. I am as rickety as a hackney-coach. I'm as sleepy as a laudanum. My lines is strained to that degree that I shouldn't know if it wasn't for the pain in them which was me and which somebody else. Yet I'm none the better for it in pocket, and it's my suspicion that you've been at it from morning to night to prevent me from being the better for it in pocket. And I won't put up with it, Agara waiter. And what do you say now? Growling, in addition, such phrases as Ah, yes, you're religious, too. You wouldn't put yourself in opposition to the interests of your husband and child, would you? Not you. And throwing off other sarcastic sparks from the whirling grindstone of his indignation, Mr. Cruncher betook himself to his boot-cleaning and his general preparation for business. In the meantime, his son, whose head was garnished with tenderer spikes, and whose young eyes stood close by one another, as his father's did, kept the required watch upon his mother. He greatly disturbed that poor woman at intervals by darting out of his sleeping-closet, where he made his toilet, 
with a suppressed cry of you're gonna flop mother hallo father and after raising this fictitious alarm darting in again with an undutiful grin mr cruncher's temper was not at all improved when he came to his breakfast he resented mrs cruncher's saying grace with particular animosity now i got a waiter what are you up to at it again his wife explained that she had merely asked a blessing don't do it said mr cruncher looking about as if he rather expected to see the loaf disappear under the efficacy of his wife's petitions i ain't a-goin to be blessed out of house and home i won't have my wittles blessed off me table keep still exceedingly red-eyed and grim as if he had been up all night at a party which had taken anything but a convivial turn jerry cruncher worried his breakfast rather than ate it growling over it like any four-footed inmate of a menagerie towards nine o'clock he smoothed his ruffled aspect and presenting as respectable and businesslike an exterior as he could overlay his natural self with issued forth to the occupation of the day it could scarcely be called a trade in spite of his favourite description of himself as a honest tradesman his stock consisted of a wooden stool made out of a broken-backed chair cut down which stool young jerry walking at his father's side carried every morning to beneath the banking-house window that was nearest temple bar where with the addition of the first handful of straw that could be gleaned from any passing vehicle to keep the cold and wet from the odd-job man's feet it formed the encampment for the day on this post of his mr cruncher was as well known to fleet street and the temple as the bar itself and was almost as in-looking encamped at a quarter before nine in good time to touch his three-cornered hat to the oldest of men as they passed into tellson's jerry took up his station on this windy march morning with young jerry standing by him when not engaged in making forays through the bar to inflict bodily and mental injuries of an acute description on passing boys who were small enough for this amiable purpose father and son extremely like each other looking silently on at the morning traffic in fleet street with their two heads as near to one another as the two eyes of each were bore a considerable resemblance to a pair of monkeys the resemblance was not lessened by the accidental circumstance that the mature jerry bit and spat out straw while the twinkling eyes of the youthful jerry were as restlessly watchful of him as of everything else in fleet street the head of one of the regular indoor messengers attached to tellson's establishment was put through the door and the word was given porter wanted hooray father here's an early job to begin with having thus given his parent godspeed young jerry seated himself on the stool entered on his revisionary interest in the straw his father had been chewing and cogitated always rusty his fingers is always rusty muttered young jerry where does me father get all that iron rust from he don't get no iron rust here chapter two a sight you know the old bailey well no doubt said one of the oldest of clerks to jerry the messenger yes sir returned jerry in something of a dogged manner i do know the bailey just so and you know mr lorry i know mr lorry sir much better than i know the bailey 
"'Much better,' said Jerry, not unlike a reluctant witness at the establishment in question, "'than I, as a honest tradesman, wish to know the bailey.' "'Very well. Find the door where the witnesses go in, and show the doorkeeper this note for Mr. Lorry. He will then let you in.' "'Into the court, sir. Into the court.' Mr. Cruncher's eyes seemed to get a little closer to one another, and to interchange the inquiry. "'What do you think of this? Am I to wait in the court, sir?' he asked, as a result of that conference. "'I am going to tell you. The doorkeeper will pass the note to Mr. Lorry, and do you make any gesture that will attract Mr. Lorry's attention, and show him where you stand. Then what you have to do is to remain there until he wants you. Is that all, sir?' "'That's all. He wishes to have a messenger at hand. This is to tell him you are there.' As the ancient clerk deliberately folded and superscribed the note, Mr. Cruncher, after surveying him in silence until he came to the blotting-paper stage, remarked, "'I suppose they'll be trying forgeries this morning. Treason!' "'That's quartering,' said Jerry. "'Barbarous!' "'It is the law,' remarked the ancient clerk, turning his surprised spectacles upon him. "'It is the law!' It's hard in the law to spile a man, I think. It's hard enough to kill him, but it's very hard to spile him, sir. Not at all, retained the ancient clerk. Speak well of the law. Take care of your chest and voice, my good friend, and leave the law to take care of itself. I give you that advice. Oh, it's the damp, sir, what settles on me chest and voice, said Jerry. I leave you to judge what a damp way of earning a living mine is. Well, well, said the old clerk, we all have our various ways of gaining a livelihood. Some of us have damp ways, and some of us have dry ways. Here is the letter. Go along. Jerry took the letter, and remarking to himself with less internal deference than he made an outward show of, You are a lean old one, too made his bow, informed his son in passing of his destination, and went his way. They hanged at Tyburn in those days, so the street outside Newgate had not obtained one infamous notoriety that has since attached to it. But the jail was a vile place, in which most kinds of debauchery and villainy were practised, and where dire diseases were bred that came into court with the prisoners, and sometimes rushed straight from the dock at my Lord Chief Justice himself, and pulled him off the bench. It had more than once happened that the judge in the black cap produced his own doom as certainly as the prisoners, and even died before him. For the rest, the old bailey was famous as a kind of deadly inn-yard, from which pale travellers set out continually, in carts and coaches, on a violent passage into the other world, traversing some two miles and a half of public street and road, and shaming few good citizens, if any. So powerful in use, and so desirable to be good use in the beginning. It was famous, too, for the pillory, a wise old institution that inflicted a punishment of which no one could foresee the extent. Also for the whipping-post, another dear old institution, very humanizing and softening to behold in action. 
also for extensive transactions in blood-money, another fragment of ancestral wisdom systematically leading to the most frightful mercenary crimes that could be committed under heaven. Altogether, the old Bailey at that date was a choice illustration of the precept that whatever is, is right, an aphorism that would be as final as it is lazy, did it not include the troublesome consequence that nothing that ever was, was wrong. Making his way through the tainted crowd, dispersed up and down this hideous scene of action, with the skill of a man accustomed to make his way quietly, the messenger found out the door he sought, and handed in his letter through a trap in it. For people then paid to see the play at the Old Bailey, just as they paid to see the play in Bedlam. Only the former entertainment was much the dearer. Therefore all the Old Bailey doors were well guarded, except, indeed, the social doors by which the criminals got there, and those were always left wide open. After some delay and demur, the door grudgingly turned on its hinges a very little way, and allowed Mr. Jerry Cruncher to squeeze himself into court. "'What's on?' he asked, in a whisper, of the man he found himself next to. "'Nothing yet. What's coming on? The treason case. The quartering one, eh?' "'Ah,' returned the man, with a relish, "'he'll be drawn on a hurdle to be half-hanged and then he'll be taken down and sliced before his own face, and then his inside will be taken out and burnt while he looks on, and then his head will be chopped off, and he'll be cut into quarters. That's the sentence. If he's found guilty, you mean to say, Jerry added by way of proviso. Oh, they'll find him guilty, said the other. Don't you be afraid of that. Mr. Cruncher's attention was here diverted to the doorkeeper, whom he saw making his way to Mr. Lorry with the note in his hand. Mr. Lorry sat at a table among the gentlemen in wigs. Not far from a wigged gentleman, the prisoner's counsel, who had a great bundle of papers before him, and nearly opposite another wigged gentleman, with his hands in his pockets, whose whole attention, when Mr. Cruncher looked at him then or afterwards, seemed to be concentrated on the ceiling of the court. After some gruff coughing and rubbing of his chin and signing with his hand, Jerry attracted the notice of Mr. Lorry, who had stood up to look for him, and who quietly nodded and sat down again. "'What's he got to do with the case?' asked the man he had spoken with. "'Blessed if I know,' said Jerry. "'What have you got to do with it, then, if a person may inquire?' "'Blessed if I know that either,' said Jerry." The entrance of the judge, and a consequent great stir and settling down in the court, stopped the dialogue. Presently the dock became the central point of interest. Two jailers, who had been standing there, went out, and the prisoner was brought in and put to the bar. Everybody present, except the one wigged gentleman who looked at the ceiling, stared at him. All the human breath in the place rolled at him like a sea, or a wind, or a fire. Eager faces strained round pillars and corners to get a sight of him. Spectators in back rows stood up, not to miss a hair of him. People on the floor of the courts laid their hands on the shoulders of the people before them, to help themselves at anybody's cost to a view of him, stood a tiptoe, got upon ledges, stood upon next to nothing, to see every inch of him. Conspicuous among these latter, like an animated bit of the spiked wall of Newgate, Jerry stood 
aimed at the prisoner the beery breath of a wet he had taken as he came along, and discharging it to mingle with the waves of other beer and gin and tea and coffee and what not that flowed at him and already broke upon the great windows behind him in an impure mist and rain. The object of all this staring and blaring was a young man of about five-and-twenty, well-grown and well-looking, with a sunburnt cheek and a dark eye. His condition was that of a young gentleman. He was plainly dressed in black, or very dark grey, and his hair, which was long and dark, was gathered in a ribbon at the back of his neck, more to be out of his way than for ornament. As an emotion of the mind will express itself through any covering of the body, so the paleness which his situation engendered came through the brown upon his cheek, showing the soul to be stronger than the sun. He was otherwise quite self-possessed, bowed to the judge, and stood quiet. The sort of interest with which this man was stared and breathed at was not a sort that elevated humanity. Had he stood in peril of a less horrible sentence, had there been a chance of any one of its savage details being spared, by just so much would he have lost in his fascination. The form that was to be doomed to be so shamefully mangled was the sight. The immortal creature that was to be so butchered and torn asunder yielded the sensation. Whatever gloss the various spectators put upon the interest, according to their several arts and powers of self-deceit, the interest was, at the root of it, ogreish. Silence in the court. Charles Darnay had yesterday pleaded not guilty to an indictment denouncing him, with infinite jingle and jangle, for that he was a false traitor to our serene, illustrious, excellent, and so forth, prince, our lord the king, by reason of his having, on diverse occasions, and by diverse means and ways, assisted Louis, the French king, in his ways against our said serene, illustrious, excellent, and so forth. That was to say, by coming and going, between the dominions of our said serene, illustrious, excellent, and so forth, and those of the said French Louis, and wickedly, falsely, traitorously, and otherwise evil adverbiously, revealing to the said French Louis what forces our said serene, illustrious, excellent, and so forth, had in preparation to send to Canada and North America. This much Jerry, with his head becoming more and more spiky as the law terms bristled it, made out with huge satisfaction, and so arrived circuitously at the understanding that the aforesaid, and over and over again aforesaid, Charles Darnay, stood there before him upon his trial, that the jury were swearing in, and that Mr. Attorney-General was making ready to speak. The accused, who was, and who knew he was, being mentally hanged, beheaded, and quartered by everybody there, neither flinched from the situation, nor assumed any theatrical air in it. He was quiet and attentive, watched the opening proceedings with a grave interest, and stood with his hands resting on the slab of wood before him so composedly that they had not displaced a leaf of the herbs with which it was strewn. The court was all bestrewn with herbs and sprinkled with vinegar, as a precaution against jail air and jail fever. Over the prisoner's head there was a mirror to throw the light down upon him. Crowds of the wicked and the wretched had been reflected in it, and had passed from its surface and this earth's together. 
haunted in a most ghastly manner, that abominable place would have been, if the glass could ever have rendered back its reflections, as the ocean is one day to give up its dead. Some passing thought of the infamy and disgrace for which it had been reserved may have struck the prisoner's mind. Be that as it may, a change in his position making him conscious of a bar of light across his face, he looked up, and when he saw the glass, his face flushed, and his right hand pushed the herbs away. It happened that the action turned his face to that side of the court which was on his left. About on a level with his eyes, there sat, in that corner of the judge's bench, two persons upon whom his look immediately rested, so immediately, and so much to the changing of his aspect, that all the eyes that were turned upon him turned to them. The spectator saw in the two figures a young lady of little more than twenty, and a gentleman who was evidently her father, a man of a very remarkable appearance in respect of the absolute whiteness of his hair, and a certain indescribable intensity of face, not of an active kind, but pondering and self-communing. When this expression was upon him, he looked as if he were old, but when it was stirred and broken up, as it was now in a moment on his speaking to his daughter, he became a handsome man, not past the prime of life. His daughter had one of her hands drawn through his arm as she sat by him, and the other pressed upon it. She had drawn close to him, in her dread of the scene, and in her pity for the prisoner. Her forehead had been strikingly expressive of an engrossing terror and compassion, that saw nothing but the peril of the accused. This had been so very noticeable, so very powerfully and naturally shown, that starers who had had no pity for him were touched by her, and the whisper went about, "'Who are they?' Jerry, the messenger, who had made his own observations, in his own manner, and who had been sucking the rust off his fingers in his absorption, stretched his neck to hear who they were. The crowd about him had pressed and passed the inquiry on to the nearest attendant, and from him it had been more slowly pressed and passed back. At last it got to Jerry. Witnesses! For which side? Against! Against what side? The prisoners! The judge, whose eyes had gone in the general direction, recalled them, leaned back in his seat, and looked steadily at the man whose life was in his hand, as Mr. Attorney General rose to spin the rope, grind the axe, and hammer the nails into the scaffold. CHAPTER Three: A DISAPPOINTMENT Mr. Attorney General had to inform the jury that the prisoner before them, though young in years, was old in the treasonable practices which claimed the forfeit of his life, that this correspondent with the public enemy was not a correspondence of to-day, or of yesterday, or even of last year, or of the year before, that it was certain the prisoner had, for longer than that, been in the habit of passing and repassing between France and England, on secret business of which he could give no honest account, that, if it were in the nature of traitorous ways to thrive, which happily it never was, the real wickedness and guilt of his business might have remained undiscovered, that Providence, however, had put it into the heart of a person who was beyond fear and beyond reproach, to ferret out the nature of the prisoner's schemes, and, struck with horror, to disclose them to His Majesty's Chief Secretary of State and Most Honourable Privy Council, that this patriot would be produced before them, 
that his position and attitude were on the whole sublime that he had been the prisoner's friend but at once in an auspicious and an evil hour detecting his infamy had resolved to immolate the traitor he could no longer cherish in his bosom on the sacred altar of his country that if statues were decreed in britain as in ancient greece and rome to public benefactors this shining citizen would assuredly have had one that as they were not so decreed he probably would not have one that virtue as had been observed by the poets in many passages which he well knew the jury would have word for word at the tips of their tongues whereat the jury's countenances displayed a guilty consciousness that they knew nothing about the passages was in a matter contagious more especially the bright virtue known as patriotism or love of country that the lofty example of this immaculate and unimpeachable witness for the crown to refer to whom however unworthily was an honour had communicated itself to the prisoner's servant and had engendered in him a holy determination to examine his master's table drawers and pockets and secrete his papers that he mr attorney-general was prepared to hear some disparagement attempted of this admirable servant but that in a general way he preferred him to his mr attorney-general's brothers and sisters and honoured him more than his mr attorney-general's father and mother that he called with confidence on the jury to come and do likewise that the evidence of these two witnesses coupled with the documents of their discovering that would be produced would show the prisoner to have been furnished with lists of his majesty's forces and of their disposition and preparation both by sea and land and would leave no doubt that he had habitually conveyed such information to a hostile power that these lists could not be proved to be in the prisoner's handwriting but that it was all the same that indeed it was rather the better for the prosecution as showing the prisoner to be artful in his precautions that the proof would go back five years and would show the prisoner already engaged in these pernicious missions within a few weeks before the date of the very first action fought between the british troops and the americans that for these reasons the jury being a loyal jury as he knew they were and being a responsible jury as they knew they were must positively find the prisoner guilty and make an end of him whether they liked it or not that they could never lay their heads upon their pillows that they could never tolerate the idea of their wives laying their heads upon their pillows that they never could endure the notion of their children laying their heads upon their pillows in short that there never could be for them or theirs any laying of heads upon pillows at all unless the prisoner's head was taken off that head mr attorney-general concluded by demanding of them in the name of everything he could think of with a round turn in it and on the faith of his solemn asseveration that he already considered the prisoner as good as dead and gone when the attorney-general ceased a buzz arose in the court as if a cloud of great blue flies were swarming about the prisoner in anticipation of what he was soon to become when toned down again the unimpeachable patriot appeared in the witness-box mr solicitor-general then following his leader's lead examined the patriot john barsad gentleman by name 
The story of his pure soul was exactly what Mr. Attorney-General had described it to be, perhaps, if it had a fault, a little too exactly. Having released his noble bosom of its burden, he would have modestly withdrawn himself. But the wigged gentleman with the papers before him, sitting not far from Mr. Lorry, begged to ask him a few questions. The wigged gentleman, sitting opposite, still looking at the ceiling of the court. Had he ever been a spy himself? No, he scorned the base insinuation. What did he live upon? His property? Where was his property? He didn't precisely remember where it was. What was it? No business of anybody's. Had he inherited it? Yes, he had. From whom? Distant relation. Very distant? Rather. Ever been in prison? Certainly not. Never in a debtor's prison? Didn't see what that had to do with it. Never in a debtor's prison? Come once again? Never? Yes. How many times? Uh, two or three times. Not five or six, perhaps. Of what profession? Gentlemen. Ever been kicked? Might have been. Frequently? No. Ever kicked downstairs? Decidedly not. Well, once received a kick on the top of a staircase and fell downstairs of his own accord. Kicked on that occasion for cheating at dice? Uh, something to that effect was said by the intoxicated liar who committed the assault, but it was not true. Swear it was not true? Positively. Ever live by cheating at play? Never. Ever live by play? Not more than other gentlemen do. Ever borrow money of the prisoner? Yes. Ever pay him? No. Was not this intimacy with the prisoner in reality a very slight one, forced upon the prisoner in coaches, inns, and packets? No. Sure he saw the prisoner with these lists? Certain. Knew no more about the lists? No. Had not procured them himself, for instance? No. Expect to get anything by this evidence? No. Not in regular government pay and employment to lay traps? Oh, dear, no. Or to do anything? Oh, dear, no. Swear that? Over and over again. No motives but motives of sheer patriotism. None whatever. The virtuous servant, Roger Cly, swore his way through the case at a great rate. He had taken service with the prisoner in good faith and simplicity four years ago. He had asked the prisoner aboard the Calais packet if he wanted the handy fellow, and the prisoner had engaged him. He had not asked the prisoner to take the handy fellow as an act of charity, never thought of such a thing. He began to have suspicions of the prisoner, and to keep an eye upon him, soon afterwards. In arranging his clothes, while travelling, he had seen similar lists to these in the prisoner's pockets over and over again. He had taken these lists from the drawer of the prisoner's desk. He had not put them there first. He had seen the prisoner show these identical lists to French gentlemen at Calais, and similar lists to French gentlemen both at Calais and Boulogne. He loved his country, and couldn't bear it, and had given information. He had never been suspected of stealing a silver teapot. He had been maligned respecting a mustard-pot, but it turned out to be only a plated one. 
he had known the last witness seven or eight years. That was merely a coincidence. He didn't call it a particularly curious coincidence. Most coincidences were curious. Neither did he call it a curious coincidence that true patriotism was his only motive, too. He was a true Briton, and hoped there were many like him. The blue flies buzzed again, and Mr. Attorney-General called Mr. Jarvis Lorry. "'Mr. Jarvis Lorry, are you a clerk in Telson's Bank?' "'I am. On a certain Friday night in November, 1775, did business occasion you to travel between London and Dover by the mail? It did. Were there any other passengers in the mail? Two. Did they alight on the road in the course of the night? They did. Mr. Lorry, look upon the prisoner. Was he one of those two passengers? I cannot undertake to say that he was. Does he resemble either of these two passengers? Both were so wrapped up and the night was so dark, and we were all so reserved, that I cannot undertake to say even that. Mr. Lorry, look again upon the prisoner. Supposing him wrapped up as those two passengers were, is there anything in his bulk and stature to render it unlikely that he was one of them? No. You will not swear, Mr. Lorry, that he was not one of them? No. So at least you say he may have been one of them. Yes, except that I remember them both to have been, like myself, timorous of highwaymen, and the prisoner has not a timorous air. Did you ever see a counterfeit of timidity, Mr. Lorry? I certainly have seen that. Mr. Lorry, look once more upon the prisoner. Have you seen him to your knowledge before? I have. When? I was returning from France a few days afterwards, and at Calais the prisoner came on board the packet-ship in which I returned, and made the voyage with me. At what hour did he come on board? Oh, at a little after midnight. In the dead of the night. Was he the only passenger who came on board at that untimely hour? He happened to be the only one. Never mind about happening, Mr. Lorry. He was the only passenger who came on board in the dead of the night. He was. Were you travelling alone, Mr. Lorry, or with any companion? With two companions, a gentleman and a lady. They are here. Had you any conversation with the prisoner? Oh, hardly any. The weather was stormy, and the passage long and rough, and I lay on a sofa, almost from shore to shore. Miss Manette. The young lady, to whom all eyes had been turned before, and were now turned again, stood up where she had sat. Her father rose with her, and kept her hand drawn through his arm. "'Miss Manette, look upon the prisoner.' To be confronted with such pity and such earnest youth and beauty was far more trying to the accursed than to be confronted with all the crowd. Standing, as it were, apart with her on the edge of his grave, not all the staring curiosity that looked on could, for the moment, nerve him to remain quite still. His hurried right hand parcelled out the herbs before him into imaginary beds of flowers in a garden, and his efforts to control and steady his breathing shook the lips from which the colour rushed to his heart. The buzz of the great flies was loud again. "'Miss Manette, 
have you seen the prisoner before yes sir where on board the packet-ship just now referred to sir and on the same occasion you are the young lady just now referred to oh most unhappily i am the plaintive tone of her compassion merged into the last musical voice of the judge as he said something fiercely answer the questions put to you and make no remark upon them miss manette had you any conversation with the prisoner on that passage across the channel yes sir recall it in the midst of a profound stillness she faintly began when the gentleman came on board do you mean the prisoner inquired the judge knitting his brows yes my lord then say the prisoner when the prisoner came on board he noticed that my father turning her eyes lovingly to him as he stood beside her was much fatigued and in a very weak state of health my father was so reduced that i was afraid to take him out of the air and i had made a bed for him on the deck near the cabin steps and i sat on the deck at his side to take care of him there were no other passengers that night but we four the prisoner was so good as to beg permission to advise me how i could shelter my father from the wind and weather better than i had done i had not known how to do it well not understanding how the wind would set when we were out of the harbour he did it for me he expressed great gentleness and kindness for my father's state and i am sure he felt it that was the manner of our beginning to speak together let me interrupt you for a moment had he come on board alone no how many were with him two french gentlemen had they conferred together they had conferred together until the last moment when it was necessary for the french gentlemen to be landed in their boat had any papers been handed about among them similar to these lists some papers had been handed about among them but i don't know what papers like these in shape and size possibly but indeed i don't know although they stood whispering very near to me because they stood at the top of the cabin steps to have the light of the lamp that was hanging there it was a dull lamp and they spoke very low and i did not hear what they said and saw only that they looked at papers now to the prisoner's conversation miss manette the prisoner was as open in his confidence with me which arose out of my helpless situation as he was kind and good and useful to my father i hope bursting into tears i may not repay him by doing him harm to-day buzzing from the blue flies miss manette if the prisoner does not perfectly understand that you give the evidence which it is your duty to give which you must give and which you cannot escape from giving with great unwillingness he is the only person present in that condition please to go on he told me that he was travelling on business of a delicate and difficult nature which might get people into trouble and that he was therefore travelling under an assumed name he said that this business had within a few days taken him to france and might at intervals take him backwards and forwards between france and england for a long time to come 
didn't he say anything about america miss manette be particular he tried to explain to me how that quarrel had arisen and he said that so far as he could judge it was a wrong and foolish one on england's part he added in a jesting way that perhaps george washington might gain almost as great a name in history as george the third but there was no harm in his way of saying this it was said laughingly and to beguile the time any strongly marked expression of face on the part of a chief actor in a scene of great interest to whom many eyes are directed would be unconsciously imitated by the spectators her forehead was painfully anxious and intent as she gave this evidence and in the pauses when she stopped for the judge to write it down watched its effect upon the counsel for and against among the lookers-on there was the same expression in all quarters of the court insomuch that a great majority of the foreheads there might have been mirrors reflecting the witness when the judge looked up from his notes to glare at that tremendous heresy about george washington mr attorney-general now signified to my lord that he deemed it necessary as a matter of precaution and form to call the young lady's father dr manette who was called accordingly dr manette look upon the prisoner have you ever seen him before once when he called at my lodgings in london some three years or three years and a half ago can you identify him as your fellow-passenger on board the packet or speak to his conversation with your daughter sir i can do neither is there any particular and special reason for your being unable to do either he answered in a low voice there is has it been your misfortune to undergo a long imprisonment without trial or even accusation in your native country dr manette he answered in a tone that went to every heart a long imprisonment were you newly released on the occasion in question they tell me so have you no remembrance of the occasion none my mind is a blank from some time i cannot even say what time when i employed myself in my captivity in making shoes to the time when i found myself living in london with my dear daughter here she had become familiar to me when a gracious god restored my faculties but i am quite unable even to say how she had become familiar i have no remembrance of the process mr attorney-general sat down and the father and daughter sat down together a singular circumstance then arose in the case the object in hand began to show that the prisoner went down with some fellow-plotter untracked in the dover mail on that friday night in november five years ago and got out of the mail in the night as a blind at a place where he did not remain but from which he travelled back some dozen miles or more to a garrison and dockyard, and there collected information. A witness was called to identify him as having been at the precise time required in the coffee-room of an hotel in that garrison and dockyard town, waiting for another person. The prisoner's counsel was cross-examining this witness with no result, 
except that he had never seen the prisoner on any other occasion, when the wigged gentleman who had all this time been looking at the ceiling of the court wrote a word or two on a little piece of paper, screwed it up, and tossed it to him. Opening this piece of paper in the next pause, the counsel looked with great attention and curiosity at the prisoner. "'You say again you are quite sure that it was the prisoner?' The witness was quite sure. "'Did you ever see anybody very like the prisoner?' "'Not so like,' the witness said, as that he could be mistaken. "'Look well upon that gentleman, my learned friend there,' pointing to him who had tossed the paper over, "'and then look well upon the prisoner. How say you, are they very like each other?' Allowing for my learned friend's appearance being careless and slovenly, if not debauched, they were sufficiently like each other to surprise not only the witness, but everybody present, when they were thus brought into comparison. My lord, being prayed to bid my learned friend lay aside his wig, and giving no very gracious consent, the likeness became much more remarkable. My lord inquired of Mr. Striver, the prisoner's counsel, whether they were next to try Mr. Carton, name of my learned friend, for treason. But Mr. Striver replied to my lord, no. But he would ask the witness to tell him whether what happened once might happen twice, whether he would have been so confident if he had seen this illustration of his rashness sooner, whether he would be so confident having seen it, and more. The upshot of which was to smash this witness like a crockery vessel, and shiver his part of the case to useless lumber. Mr. Cruncher had by this time taken quite a lunge of rust off his fingers in his following of the evidence. He had now to attend while Mr. Striver fitted the prisoner's case on the jury, like a compact suit of clothes, showing them how the patriot Barsad was a hired spy and traitor, an unblushing trafficker in blood, and one of the greatest scoundrels upon earth since accursed Judas which he certainly did look rather like. How the virtuous servant, Cly, was his friend and partner, and was worthy to be. How the watchful eyes of those forgers and false swearers had rested on the prisoner as a victim, because some family affairs in France, he being of French extraction, did require his making those passages across the Channel, though what those affairs were, a consideration for others who were near and dear to him, forbade him, even for his life, to disclose, how the evidence that had been warped and wrested from the young lady, whose anguish in giving it they had witnessed, came to nothing, involving the mere little innocent gallantries and politenesses likely to pass between any young gentleman and young lady so thrown together. With the exception of that reference to George Washington, which was altogether too extravagant and impossible to be regarded in any other light, than as a monstrous joke. How it would be a weakness in the government to break down in this attempt to practice for popularity on the lowest national antipathies and fears, and therefore Mr. Attorney-General had made the most of it. How, nevertheless, it rested upon nothing, save that vile and infamous character of evidence too often disfiguring such cases, and of which the state trials of this country were full but there my lord interposed, but with as grave a face as if it had not been true, saying that he could not sit upon that bench and suffer those allusions. Mr. Stryber then called his few witnesses, 
and Mr. Cruncher had next to attend, while Mr. Attorney-General turned the whole suit of clothes Mr. Stryver had fitted on the jury inside out, showing how Barsad and Cly were even a hundred times better than he had thought them, and the prisoner a hundred times worse. Lastly came my lord himself, turning the suit of clothes, now inside out, now outside in, but on the whole decidedly trimming and shaping them into grave clothes for the prisoner. And now the jury turned to consider and the great flies swarmed again. Mr. Carton, who had so long sat looking at the ceiling of the court, changed neither his place nor his attitude, even in this excitement, while his learned friend, Mr. Stryver, massing his papers before him, whispered with those who sat near, and from time to time glanced anxiously at the jury, while all the spectators moved more or less and grouped themselves anew while even my lord himself arose from his seat, and slowly paced up and down his platform, not unattended by a suspicion in the minds of the audience, that his state was feverish. This one man sat leaning back, with his torn gown half off him, his untidy wig put on just as it happened to light on his head after its removal, his hands in his pockets, and his eyes on the ceiling as they had been all day. Something especially reckless in his demeanour, not only gave him a disreputable look, but so diminished the strong resemblance he undoubtedly bore to the prisoner, which his momentary earnestness, when they were compared together, had strengthened, that many of the lookers-on, taking note of him now, said to one another they would hardly have thought the two were so alike. Mr. Cruncher made the observation to his next neighbour, and added, "'I'd hold half a guinea that he don't get no law-work to do. Don't look like the sort of one to get any, do he?' Yet this Mr. Carton took in more of the details of the scene than he appeared to take in, for now, when Miss Manette's head dropped upon her father's breast, he was the first to see it, and to say audibly, "'Officer, look to that young lady. Help the gentleman to take her out. Don't you see she will fall?' There was much commiseration for her as she was removed, and much sympathy with her father. It had evidently been a great distress to him to have the days of his imprisonment recalled. He had shown strong internal agitation when he was questioned, and that pondering or brooding look which made him old had been upon him like a heavy cloud ever since. As he passed out, the jury, who had turned back and paused a moment, spoke through their foreman. They were not agreed and wished to retire. My lord, perhaps with George Washington on his mind, showed some surprise that they were not agreed, but signified his pleasure that they should retire under watch and ward, and retired himself. The trial had lasted all day, and the lamps in the court were now being lighted. It began to be rumoured that the jury would be out a long while. The spectators dropped off to get refreshments, and the prisoner withdrew to the back of the dock and sat down. Mr. Lorry, who had gone out when the young lady and her father went out, now reappeared and beckoned to Jerry, who, in the slackened interest, could easily get near him. "'Jerry, if you wish to take something to eat, you can, but keep in the way. You will be sure to hear when the jury come in. Don't be a moment behind them, for I want you to take the verdict back to the bank. You are the quickest messenger I know, and will get to Temple Bar long before I can.' Jerry had just enough forehead to knuckle and he knuckled it in acknowledgment of this communication and a shilling. 
Mr. Carton came up at the moment and touched Mr. Lorry on the arm. "'How is the young lady?' "'She is greatly distressed, but her father is comforting her, and she feels the better for being out of court. "'I'll tell the prisoner, so it won't do for a respectable bank gentleman like you to be seen speaking to him publicly, you know.' Mr. Lorry reddened as if he were conscious of having debated the point in his mind, and Mr. Carton made his way to the outside of the bar. The way out of court lay in that direction, and Jerry followed him, all eyes, ears, and spikes. "'Mr. Darnay,' the prisoner came forward directly, "'you will naturally be anxious to hear the witness, Miss Manette. She will do very well. You have seen the worst of her agitation. I am deeply sorry to have been the cause of it. Could you tell her so for me?' with my fervent acknowledgments yes i could i will if you ask it mr carton's manner was so careless as to be almost insolent he stood half turned from the prisoner lounging with his elbow against the bar i do ask it accept my cordial thanks what said carton still only half turned towards him do you expect mr darnay the worst it's the wisest thing to expect, and the likeliest. But I think their withdrawing is in your favour. Loitering on the way out of court not being allowed, Jerry heard no more, but left them, so like each other in feature, so unlike each other in manner, standing side by side, both reflected in the glass above them. An hour and a half limped heavily away in the thief and rascal-crowded passages below, even though assisted off with mutton-pies and ale. The horse-messenger, uncomfortably seated on a form after taking that refection, had dropped into a doze, when a loud murmur and a rapid tide of people setting up the stairs that led to the court carried him along with them. "'Jerry!' Mr. Lorry was already calling at the door when he got there. "'Here, sir! It's a fight to get back again! Here I am, sir!' Mr. Lorry handed a paper through the thong. Quick! Have you got it? Yes, sir. Hastily written on the paper was the word, Acquitted. If you had sent the message, Recall to life again, muttered Jerry as he turned, I should have known what you meant this time. He had no opportunity of saying or so much as thinking anything else until he was clear of the old bailey for the crowd came pouring out with a vehemence that nearly took him off his legs, and a loud buzz swept into the street, as if the baffled blue flies were dispersing in search of other carrion. End of Part One